this Friday. Your favorite emotions are back on the big screen in Disney and Pixar's Inside Out 2. It's time to greet your Team Riley. It's anger. Let me at him. Fear. Safety checklist is complete. Disgust. Ew, ew. Ugh. Sadness is in the house. Oh, no. Hello, I'm anxiety. I'm one of Riley's new emotions. Disney and Pixar's Inside Out 2. There's a part two? We're going. Rated PG. Parental guidance suggested. Only in theaters Friday. Get tickets now. Hello, and welcome to It's a Fandom Thing. I'm your host, Erin Marlowe, and each week I'm joined by a panel of guests to discuss all things fandom and pop culture, primarily from a female perspective. You'll find everything from fanfic, to cosplay, to Schitt's Creek, to Supernatural, and everything in between. So put on your favorite piece of fandom merch, set aside that fanfic that you're writing about your OTP, and sit back and enjoy this week's episode. Hello. Well, I am so, so excited to bring you this special interview. If you've listened to our Wednesday pop culture and fandom news episode, you might have heard me mention this amazing new documentary that I was very honored to watch called Commitment to Life, which documents the true story of the fight against HIV and AIDS in Los Angeles and how an intrepid group of people living with HIV, AIDS, doctors, movie stars, studio moguls, and activists changed the course of the epidemic. It's a powerful, powerful documentary. And I do mean it when I say it's like the best documentary I have seen about the AIDS crisis. So I highly recommend it. And I really hope you enjoy this interview with director Jeffrey Schwartz and also with Dr. Michael Gottlieb. So thank you so much. Well, thank you both so much. I watched the documentary last night and cried about five times and was just so moved by this. And I think this is one of the best uh, documentaries I have watched about the AIDS crisis. And what I thought was so beautiful about it, and I wanted to ask you, Jeffrey, first, is this is the first time that I can remember, recall, seeing a documentary that wasn't just focused on white gay men and how they were affected by the crisis. So why was that so important to you to make sure to get other people's um, perspective on it as well? Uh, well, thank you, Aaron. You, you're one of the first people to ever even see this movie. And and this is among our first interviews where, where we get to talk about it. So it's a real pleasure for us and to hear your emotional responses really means a lot to us because that's what we try to do. We're trying to make a movie that's going to move, move people. Um, so, you know, at the beginning, as we show in the film, the, the face of, of AIDS was gay white men. You know, this was this was the community that was being represented in the media in terms of the, the group that was being the most affected. But in fact, we know that the uh, African-American community, the Latino community was being affected disproportionately by this, but we just weren't seeing the, the faces um, of that. So it was uh, beholden to those communities to address it uh, amongst themselves because they were not getting the resources, they were not getting the attention. Uh, so there were groups like the Minority AIDS Project that started, uh, was co-founded by Jewel Tice Williams, who's in our film, and the Reverend Carl Bean. You know, they they started the Minority AIDS Project to, to focus exclusively on the needs of people of color because those needs are different. You know, so that the needs of 
communities of color, sometimes they uh, they were different than the needs of the the more affluent affluent uh, gay white male community uh, that we depict in the film. I mean, basic survival was something that was an issue that was not necessarily an issue for the the, the white gay community. Basic mm-hmm. survival, basic survival was very important for different communities who just like didn't know where their next meal was going to come from. Sometimes, right? So it was really important to acknowledge that in our film. Uh, and to uh, and also the trans community, which was really not on anybody's radar as it should have been at the time, but we we interviewed people from that community who felt like they were not getting uh, acknowledged and their suffering was not being acknowledged. So yeah, it was very important to us to sort of highlight that and to profile some of the people who emerged as real leaders in those communities. Yeah, yeah, I just thought it was fascinating because it was stuff that I did, wasn't aware of. And, you know, I was a kid growing up in that time. And, you know, I was I was my one of my mom's great friends died of AIDS and she was one of the few people taking care of him. And but I didn't know this side of it. So it was really, really fascinating to watch. And then, um, Dr. Gottlieb, I know you were instrumental, right, in first um, diagnosing AIDS. Correct. Is that correct? Or. I was an assistant professor at UCLA in 1981 and participated in the identification of AIDS as a new disease. And we made a report to CDC about unusual infections in in, uh, gay men. Uh, And uh, this was pneumocystis pneumonia, the most characteristic uh, early opportunistic infection that occurred. And it was an indication that there was an immune deficiency because people generally didn't walk in off the street uh, ill with pneumocystis pneumonia normal uh, immune competent people didn't. And so this was evidence of a new uh, immune deficiency and it was an acquired immune deficiency because uh, these people had grown to adulthood without any problem of of infection and all of a sudden had a series of these opportunistic infections. That was the essential identification of the new disease. And then some years later, uh, the French team at the Pasteur Institute identified the cause of immune deficiency, which was HIV. And so today we talk about HIV AIDS or HIV alone, uh, because that's the root cause of the immune deficiency. So I I was involved from, from, I guess, the very beginning, the identification. And so I have stayed involved and and I'm currently uh, a physician working for APLA Health, which uh, is the organization that developed as a uh, outgrowth of APLA, which was a community uh, response project. Yeah, which it was an amazing response project. Yeah. And, um, and I know, in the medical community, was it very, was it hard? Did you come up against a lot of like brick walls, basically, and people not wanting to look at this, especially since it was affecting a community that was still ostracized? And I do try to repress those those early days and those early experiences, but you're right. Uh, very early on, you you couldn't find surgeons to operate on people with with uh, HIV, and there were some practitioners who refused to see people with HIV, which I I think was somewhat regional. I think in the large cities, when when it, where it was common, you know, people tended to you could always find someone to see a patient, but there would be other practitioners who wouldn't. And eventually it's become normalized such that, uh, you know, especially with treatment and better prognosis that that doctors are now up to speed for the most part. But back then, you know, 20, 30 years ago, it was uh, it was pretty dark. And uh, and uh, you did experience those those experiences. And 
there's a lot of fear of food service workers would, would leave trays at the door and wouldn't come in the room to, to put the tray on the bedside stand. Just there's a lot of fear and, and lack of information. And then there was misinformation. And that's why an organization like APLA sprung up to, to answer questions to the extent that answers were known and then to uh, get the word out about how this uh, infection was transmitted and how it wasn't, more importantly, how it wasn't transmitted. But in the medical profession, uh, uh, there's usually, or not usually, but there can be blood, blood exposure. And that's what some physicians were most, uh, uh, most concerned about. And, and uh, in some cases, uh, those physicians you know, didn't want to deal with that. Uh, but even ordinary physicians who would just sit in the room with a patient sometimes uh, wouldn't want to do that. Yeah. And, and um, speaking of getting the word out, I know, uh, Jeffrey, the big thing with uh, commitment to life with the whole fundraiser was getting Hollywood involved. And what's so interesting to me always about Hollywood is because um, we cover pop culture and media and, and stuff on our, my podcast is Hollywood likes to say it's this bastion of openness and liberal mindedness. And yet there were a lot of people that, you know, they were fearful of saying they had AIDS um, because they wouldn't be able to get jobs. And a lot of people still in the closet and then having people come out, especially like Elizabeth Taylor and all of that was so, so instrumental. Do you think, I know it's changed a little bit, but do you think there's still some of that fear within Hollywood? Well, how many openly HIV people, HIV positive people can you name in, in the That's entertainment true. community of stars, celebrities? So I have great respect for uh, Billy Porter, for example. He mm-hmm. recently uh, came out about his HIV status. Um, so, and there are others, and they're using their celebrity as a platform to educate people in the same way that Elizabeth Taylor did at a very different time. But if you can see that there's still stigma about this, and Dr. Gottlieb in a previous interview, we was talking about how you know, if he has a, a client or a patient with HIV, he might not necessarily advise them to be public about it. And then you want to speak to that, Dr. Gottlieb, about the stigma that might still be there? I think there's there's a potential. If you've got a sympathetic employer, that's one thing, but uh, privileged information, it's a medical diagnosis. People with HIV are extremely productive in the workforce and all, all pursuits of life. And uh, it really isn't uh, necessarily, there really isn't a point unless someone needs uh, special accommodation. There, there's really no point in sharing an HIV diagnosis with your employer because it could cost you your job. Not immediately, but, but they, somebody was going to think about you in a different way. Think about your ability to do your job in a different way and you know, potentially seize on that diagnosis as, as a reason, despite anti-discrimination uh, provisions and law, just might might contrive some other reason to let you go. Yeah. Think of some other thing or set it up in a way where you are bound to quote unquote, make an error or mistake that might be fireable or something like that. So yeah, a lot of that fear and stigma still out there. And I think also, you know, in, in this uh, documentary, uh, people do say, you know, there, uh, there's a generation now that doesn't, you know, know what it was like to grow up during a time when it was a death sentence and how maybe that's that people should remember how it was back then. And um, that's why I think like documentaries like this are so important. 
And why do you think that's so important? And either one of you can answer that to remember what happened back then to never forget that. Well, I mean, speaking from myself, you know, that's why I make movies. You know, I really try to make movies for a younger generation and to try to make this history come alive for them, you know, and for a younger person to watch this film, I really hope they come away with like great pride in what we were able to achieve in a relatively short amount of time. You know, when, when things were at their most bleak and most hopeless and people didn't see a way out of this, we found a way out of it. I mean, it's not, it's still going on. The story's not over, but I, I hope that people can find some inspiration in their own in their own lives. You know, we're facing problems in our country and our world, aside from HIV AIDS, which is still, it's not the crisis it once was, but there's still a million people with HIV in the United States right now, 35,000 new infections every year, you know, with those numbers are way too high, you know, but we're facing so many problems that seem hopeless. You know, it seems like, what are we going to do about climate change? What are we going to do about uh, gun violence? All these things. But it really, the film hopefully will show to a young person like, oh, maybe I can make a difference. Again, me and a small group of friends, maybe we can start a movement, you know, and, and the movie that the APLA AIDS Project Los Angeles was started by a small group of friends who were not political activists. They were a bunch of gay guys who like to go out and party together, you know, <laughs> like literally they would go out to the probe disco every weekend. But then people started getting sick and they needed to sort of channel um, that grief into action. So, you know, you see so many people now in the media today who were channeled into activism because of something really terrible that happened to them. You know, if the uh, Cory Bush in the Senate, you know, in Congress who lost a child to gun violence, you know, I'll, I'll run for this. I'll run for Congress. Like, maybe I can do something about this. So I hope that's what people come away with, that people, one person can make a difference. And I would echo what, what Jeff has said in terms of uh, it's important not to forget uh, in, in part as a tribute to the people who endured uh, those early years and, and who participated in clinical trials that led to the development of medications uh, that, that people not forget. And, and, and young people can be inspired by, by people just coming together, uh, the original APLA uh, group, people just coming together and, uh, and, and providing the necessities, uh, information and necessities of life, and then uh, how just how how people can make a difference. I think it's an inspiring story. I'm I'm very glad uh, Jeff has, and APLA Health have done this. Yeah, it's it really really is because I think sometimes people feel so helpless, and so if you can watch something like this and see people that felt, you know, that they they had no one helping them, no one wanted to help them. And so then they knew they had to, they basically became activists because they had to in order to survive or to help their community survive. And it is, it's a very, very inspiring, inspiring story. So I'm wondering as a filmmaker, Jeffrey, did you learn anything about yourself as an artist or anything making this movie? Oh, that's a great question. I mean, I, I came of age, um, I came out in the early nineties. So by the time I came out, we've had 10 years of this. So I grew up with this. So even I found, I remember first hearing about it in science class um, in probably 83 or 84. And it was like, it just didn't seem like it had anything to do with me, but it was gay people. And I was not really aware of that I was gay, but, you know, as I started to come of age, there was such tremendous fear around sexuality. You know, you were coming out into this world and you, you know, you were a young person and you're exploring your sexuality. And at the same time, like there's this this thing out there that might kill you. Like if you have sex with somebody, it might kill you. And so I was just, I had a lot of anxiety around this. And 
I think it's a very different world now for young people. I'm thank God they don't have to grow up with that kind of fear and anxiety, but they still need the information. They need the information. So, you know, what I come away with this, you know, I just came away feeling such pride in um, my community, pride in my city. I'm an LA transplant. I didn't realize just how important LA was. You know, I feel like LA's gotten such a bad rap. When people think of LA, they just think of it being this like, you know, spray tans and plastic <laughs> surgery. And it's like, it's not that way. I mean, there's a lot of really important things that happened here over the years and are still happening here. And, you know, Hollywood, you know, gets a bad rap sometimes for being really self-involved and vapid, you know, but there's a lot of really good people in the industry who tried to use their, their, their privilege for good, you know, like, only somebody like Elizabeth Taylor can call the president of the United States on the phone and yeah. say, you need to show up at this fundraiser, this AIDS fundraiser, and you need to to address this. Because he hadn't said the word out loud in public uh, for like five years. And in 87, when Elizabeth called him, he showed up and because she said, do it for me. Dr. Gottlieb says mm -hmm. that in the film. You know, Elizabeth said to Ronald Reagan, do it for me. And he did it. Only Elizabeth Taylor can do that. You and I couldn't possibly do that. Or somebody like David Geffen, you know, could really change the conversation in Hollywood. It was because he was personally affected by this because his friends were getting sick and dying. You know, this is someone with enormous power in the industry to change things. You know, Barry Diller, you know, these are moguls in the industry that were able to sort of say like, wait a minute, this isn't right. You know, our people are, are, are hiding. And an actor like Brad Davis, who we show in the mm -hmm. film, he he has AIDS and he can't even talk to his own family members about this because there's such fear. He won't be able to get a job. He'll lose his insurance. If he doesn't get a job as an actor, he'll lose his insurance. He'll lose his access to medication. And, you know, it's, it's, it was a really dire, dire situation. But people with access to power, they did something about it. And, I, and, and people with, with no access to power did something about it, just as important. You know, people like Jewel Tace Williams, who ran a, 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 a disco that was like the mecca for people of color here in L.A. to go and dance and have a good time. But she used that as a way to educate people, you know, so you'd go there, you'd be dancing, have a good time. But like somebody would come up to you and give you a condom and say, love yourself. And that's just a really beautiful, beautiful thing. So I came away just feeling really just so proud of what we were able to accomplish. Yeah, I yeah, I it's really just, again, inspiring. I know I keep saying it, but it really was an inspiring uh, story. And the the little thing about David Geffen just being, you know, when they wanted to, when they wanted to have the record store, that old record store in the facility and calling him and saying, we need a million dollars. And David Geffen just being like, okay, that's, yeah. I mean, <laughs> amazing. that's incredible. Amazing. And people like, you know, you, you're a horror fan, I know. And yes. so you have people like Zelda Rubenstein, you know, from mm -hmm. Poltergeist who was became like the spokesmom for um, APLA where they had, it was early on in safe sex when that was like an unheard of thing, safe sex for gay men. Like, well, we're not going to get anybody pregnant. So what do we need condoms for? Right. So, but she and APLA, they, they, they put out this public health campaign in LA. It was called mother cares. And Zelda Rubenstein was the mother who was telling her boys to, you know, play safely out there. And she was the face of this. And that was right like a year or so after Poltergeist came out. So, you know, it's just such a these little quirky things really that were really fun for for us at making the movie to to put in there and and uh, there's lots of surprises along the way and I want I don't want people to be afraid of this movie I want people to go in feeling like they're going to have a good time because there's a lot of fun to be had in this movie too because like Definitely. we were activists but we had fun doing it you know we had these fundraisers and marches and and you know uh, 
John Rivers, you know, doing doing an early fundraiser and just bringing the house down and Elton John, you know, singing I Feel Pretty at a, a commitment to life ceremony. And, you know, just lots of fun along the way. Madonna doing her part. So I want people to feel like they're going to have a they're going to learn a lot, but they're going to have a really, really good time watching this movie. Oh, definitely. Yeah. That Elton John bit was, I loved that. That was, that was incredible. I loved, I loved that a lot. And, and I bet um, uh, Dr. Gottlieb, I am sure revisiting some of those pleasant memories and those amazing things moments must've been really incredible for you yes, as well. That, that's true. And I, I actually participated in some of them. I was at that original commitment to life event uh, with 7,000 or so people showed up and lots of stars, but uh, a lot of those events, I, I had not being, not being a part of the community, or the uh, I I uh, I didn't go to, and I'm seeing them for the first time, and it's exciting and lots of fun. Yeah, I bet. Well, I just want to thank both of you, and thank you, Jeffrey, so much for bringing this documentary to life, and thank you for everything you have done, Doctor Gottlieb. Seriously, thank you so much. Um, yeah, and then I just quickly just wanted to just say I love I Am Divine too. I just I love that documentary too. So just wanted to. Oh, mention that you. briefly too so. thank you yeah yeah that was another fun movie to make yeah, yeah yeah there's just so many stories to tell i can't wait to make the next one yeah and i can't wait to watch it so thank you so so much so. thanks for having us thank you again to jeffrey schwartz and dr michael gottlieb for taking the time to speak with me and thank you again so much jeffrey for creating this amazing and powerful documentary that i really really think will help change lives and affect people in deep and profound ways. Be sure to like the show on Facebook at facebook.com slash it's a fandom thing pod on Twitter at fandom thing pod. No, it's in that one on Instagram at it's a fandom thing pod on TikTok at it's a fandom thing pod. If you would like to be a potential interview guest on the show, feel free to reach out to us via our website. It's a fandom thing pod.com. Click the contact us button there. That'll shoot me an email and I'll get back to you as soon as I can. So thank you very much. And until next time, remember, it's a fandom thing. Black Lives Matter and Stop Asian Hate. It's time for today's Lucky Land Horoscope with Victoria Cash. Life's gotten mundane, so shake up the daily routine and be adventurous with a trip to Lucky Land. You know what they say, your chance to win starts with a spin. So go to LuckyLandSlots.com to play over 100 social casino-style games for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Get lucky today at LuckyLandSlots.com. Available to players in the U.S., excluding Washington and Michigan. No purchase necessary. VGW Group. Void or prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions. Supply. Hey, are you a super fan of Taylor Swift, Jelly Roll, or Morgan Wallen? Are you that song nerd who likes to dive into every little lyric of every little song and figure out what everything means? Do you want to take that a bit further, though? Because I have a podcast called Songwriter Soup, and it dives into the journey of a songwriter and how those people help craft the soundtrack of your life. I'm Laura Veltz, and I'm bringing all of my friends together to discuss our funny little job writing for all of your favorite artists. Listen to Songwriter Soup wherever you get your podcasts.